Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Girls Gone Canon, John 8 in a Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from Twitter as at Arbor or Tumblr and at my blog, LiesAndArborGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You probably know me, though, as Glass Table Girl on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit on the Maester Monthly podcast, or maybe as Arithmetric on Twitter. But speaking of the Maester Monthly podcast, but also it being episode 50. <gasps> I can't inhale actually further. I tried. I was like, that, that, that's my lung capacity. I. <laughs> You might recognize him. We've talked about him in the past. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we just talked about his great piece on Weirwoods. It is Joe Magician. Bam, 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 bam. Oh my god, it's me, you guys. It's I you. Made it. I made it. To, I'm on the big time on Girls Oh my Canada. god. Is... He's like running up the stairs right now, high-fiving yeah. people as he <laughs> Doing runs. Magic, That's you know? basically what I do. I give lots of high-fives while running. That's my whole life, basically. I could see you, being, I could see you doing that. <laughs> Wow. Well, I didn't even know you not run. recently. I took an arrow to the knee. It's fine. Mm. Whatever. I run to chase <laughs> after the bus because sometimes it, I can see it and it's about to pull up to the stop. Oh I'm like, God. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And I feel like a magical girl <laughs> from uh, some anime. <laughs> Matt, what are you working on lately? What's new on your YouTube channel? Tell us where we can okay, find so you. Chat, man. I, running joke. I have way too many titles and... I probably should do less things, but I do all the things, apparently. I've got my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Joe Magician. I've been doing a lot of uh, show content um, while this is going on, going on. I did the theory about, like, yes. what is the King's symbol crazy thing mean that he was doing? That one that one was pretty well received. I did one on Jenny's song, which Shakespeare, th- sh- oh my god, Shakespeare Thrones uh, sang on it and played the cello. It was just like she the most really magical weekend. thing. And for all you out there. so good. I finished <gasps> Killing of a Ranger oh, what? Part 2. It's out there. You can watch oh, it. Wow. It's done. And it has a lot to do with this chapter we're going to talk about. Yes, please do. Tell us a little about uh tell us a little about it. Both or or, or are you going to say it throughout the episode? Uh, I can just I can talk about it a little bit right now. Um so it was mostly it's mostly a show thing um because like John's story has not ended in the in the books we're pretty close to the end in this one and i talked about the idea of like the old way that they've introduced like single combat and lords fighting each other and like lord of the rings and how this might tie up john's story as like a parallel of waymar in the opening prologue and turns out i was absolutely fucking right except it was theon instead of john (laughs) in the show the the exact scenario (laughs) i described happened to theon in his death sequence in the show yeah which felt good. I got that part right. Uh, yeah. Not John, though. I, I did see I did see that when I was watching it, and I think you're spot on. Goddamn. Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, and who knows? I think those elements might still be there, obviously, in the story. Well, the, the fun thing about the theory is it actually works almost basically as well in the books as the show. I just use a lot of show content because it's the show season. Mm-hmm. So I like yeah. I pulled the videos instead of the quotes. But it, it works. I think it works just as well in the books. Maybe Well, it's better. nice to have the visual. It's nice yes. to have the visual. That's what's Visuals yeah. are nice, guys. I learned how to do them. You can actually <laughs> see stuff on my YouTube videos now. It's not just still images. Hell yeah. Well, we'll <laughs> link your YouTube channel and uh, anything else to find you on the internet will be in the description of this episode. So make sure you check that out, you guys. And Eliana and I just came back from a crazy weekend. We're getting this episode out a little later than we wanted to for patrons. Uh, we just came back from Ice and Fire Con. Yes, we did. Um, I know that 
uh, Joe Magician, a.k.a. Matt. I'm going to call you Matt from now on because that's how I know you. So- <laughs> Especially because there's a Matt in the uh, chapter, too. <gasps> it oh, is. It's hit. It's the you. The sword. The sword. The sword. I did see that and I thought of you. I was like, I hope Matt reads this. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I saw it. I, I felt oh so seen. <laughs> I was like, George, you knew. You knew in advance. I would read this one day and this would be my favorite chapter. Wow, if we're shadowing. And, and actually, I think it might be my favorite chapter. Because of that? Because you're in it? Yes. Oh, I am gosh. that self-centered, Eliana. <laughs> no, it's because of Eamon. I know him. Yeah, it's because of Eamon. Actually, J.R. J.R. grew on me in this one a lot. Mm. This conversation was really good. It was. Yeah. There's a lot really good about this, uh, this this chapter, but yeah, Ice and Fire Con was, as always, incredibly fun. Uh, you mentioned Shakespeare of Thrones, and she mm-hmm. also brought her cello. That's actually how I recognized her as she was walking in. I was like, "Hey, are you?" I I, I didn't really, like really recognize her face because people look different on video and like whatever and stuff and. I knew it was her because she had her cello and she would bust it out every now and then. She also played Jenny's song a couple of times mm-hmm. at the con. Yeah. I'm really bummed because uh, we actually, so I lost my voice after the musical Friday. <coughs> and it actually wasn't the musical that I lost my voice during because that was pre-recorded. Uh, <laughs> but it was after the musical because after the Ice on Fire Con musical that's put on by volunteers and staff and friends, uh, after that was over, somebody drank a shit ton of wine, and it was like a, it was like a demon was released after that musical because we weren't allowed to drink for two days. Basically, like we had to wait until nighttime to drink. But after we were released from the musical, it was like somebody gave someone a lot of wine, and then they let a bunch of chants that all started with the Queen in the North all around the convention. And I don't know who that was, but whoever it was was exercising a demon, and I lost my voice. You can still kind of hear it right now. I'm not mm-hmm. as full as I usually am. Uh, it was me. It was me that exercised that demon. It was me leading Queen in the North chants around the convention with people. <laughs> yep, that was you. Yeah, that was me. It was a wild weekend. Uh, I'm not going to lie, Chloe. Your voice might be more manly than mine at this point. Uh, well, it, it's hard. You have such smooth, dulcet tones. <laughs> people uh, say that am, about you. I am drinking some whiskey. I'm hoping for the best here. Wow. But yeah, uh, that musical after that, I lost my voice. And Shakespeare Thrones and I had talked about possibly doing something in the performance contest where I would have had to go head to head and be a rival of my wife, Eliana, because she won the performance contest with Scad from Davos Fingers and uh, one of our buddies, Seth, this weekend. Yeah, and like Seth and Scad actually act. So that was intimidating, but it was super fun. I just love them. It, it was a great time. We also, because, you know, Scad has a heart of gold as Seth and I were like watching everyone go up for the performance. We were all like, oh, well, good thing we don't have to go after that for things like that. We're like, oh, God, but what if we have to go after that and all these things? Because we didn't know when we were slated. And then Scad was like, you guys, it's not a competition. Just have fun with it. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And so we just had fun. And then turns out it actually was a competition. And no one told me this. And then it was great. We were outside of the uh, the closing ceremonies and Eliana's standing there chatting my ear off about stuff like she does. You know, she's so chatty. Girls gone chatting. What? I'm just kidding. You were though. We were chatting. And then all of a sudden I just hear out of the corner of my ear because I'm also like keeping an eye to make sure what's happening in there in the closing ceremonies in case I'm needed for something. Uh, and I hear them go, uh, the winners are Scad. And then I look, I knew right when they said that, I was like, oh shit, that means Eliana won. Uh, Scad, Seth, and, Elia- and Eliana for the scene with uh, Stannis, Melisandre, and Davos. And so I was so excited. I was like, you have to go in there. And she's like, wait, what? 
I was like, why is she telling me to go into the room? What's happening? And I was just like, just go. Like, I wasn't really helpful. I was like, and just I didn't pushing you in. No, do I go in front? But like, what I, okay, my biggest regret though is like, as I was coming back, I thought it was like the wolf that was on the ground, but turns out it was Pat Doherty's like Siberian Husky. And I was, I wanted to pet it, but I'm, you know, obviously a little yeah. hesitant about just going in and petting a wolf because they're not dogs. Right. And I was afraid like, Mm, is its wolfish instincts gonna kick in if I try to just like pet it out of nowhere and turns out it was the husky and now I really regret not just sitting down and <laughs> I never got to pet the dog okay I understand. that's it well, hopefully next year that's the saddest story that is, ever heard. Uh, dude oh my god Matt you would have loved him he was so enormous he was so, so big fluffy. and so fluffy one of the best parts of the conventions on the upside, outside of your sadness over the pupper, the doggo, the good boy, uh, one of the best parts was doing our patron stretch goal live stream. Yes, it was a great time. And, you know, it took us a little bit to get it up, but I don't know. It was so fun having everyone there to just discuss the episode with. Like, Yeah, we pulled in so many people. I'm not going to lie, everyone. It was the greatest watch party like it was the greatest game of thrones watch party yeah there were a hundred nerds in this room everyone like we watched season eight episode two first and i did the seven kingdoms and like ever, there wasn't a dry eye in the house when Bri brianne was knighted and jenny's song and all of us were just like sitting there and it was beautiful it was so beautiful and i got really mad i like told everyone to shut up during jenny's song because they were talking i was like can you shut up this is very important and then like when oh it was when brienne was getting knighted people were talking and i was like shh this is very important. This is history. Like, you need to shut your mouth. There are important things happening on that screen. I was very mad. People aren't religious like I am, I guess. Uh, <laughs> look, I'm into Sundays. It's a holy day. But it is. we do have the live stream. It will be up on YouTube probably by the time you're listening to this for the public. So check it out. There's a good amount of background noise here and there because there were like a hundred nerds milling about behind us uh, as we did the live stream, all chattering about the episode. So we'll release that for you guys as well. But on top of that, we want to do a Q&A episode for Season 8, Episode 3 and do predictions for Episode 4 and going on in the series and the endgame and what it might mean going forward. We're going to record that this week on Saturday. Uh, so if you're listening to this, it's probably going to be Friday for you if you're not a patron. So check it out. Send us a message or a tweet or get on our patron and comment or even an email. And uh, we'll hopefully have that out for you Sunday before the episode. So that's exciting. And of course, as a reminder, though, we will not be having our John 9 and 10 episode out this coming uh, next week. So you will not be getting a John 9 and 10 episode, uh, depending on you know who you are. On the 8th, 9th, or 10th, there will be no John episode. We are taking some time to recover and also uh, have some other exciting news that will be announced eventually, shortly. And our Game of Thrones episode will definitely be out, though, so don't worry about yes. that. Yes. Episode 4. Yeah, we are still going to record and have out on the 7th. You will have our reactions to Season 8, Episode 4. So Hooray. keep an eye out for that. Just no John yet. And then we are also going to take a quick break after the season ends on the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. So there will be no episodes then either. Yes, you will get our last Game of thrones the episode for a little bit. And uh, we'll return to you For like next forever? Week. No, not forever. We might do other things. Don't be a spoil sport. 
<laughs> but yeah, we'll take a break that week and we'll return after that with some exciting news. And don't forget to check out Patrons $5 and Up, the patron episode that was just released with Manu, Manuclear Bomb on Twitter from A Scene of Ice and Fire. Uh, we went all the way back. We Let's start back to the very beginning. Uh, and we did let's episode one, back. season one. So... Back Check that out if you haven't. Eliana, are you singing? Is that happening? Back mm-hmm. to when the earth, the sun, the stars were all... That's, that's also a throwback to our, to our first episode. I'm coming clean. <laughs> I'm coming clean. Coming clean. Yeah, so uh, lightning round. What did we miss between John 7 and John 8? Brand 6. The car starts arrive, and Bran prays in the godswood, where Osha warns him of the others, and tells him to convince his brother to go north, but he's too late. Also, Bran doesn't know that it takes one day to defeat the Night's King. Yeah, it's... One, one stabby, stabby stab. You know, it's just a little too late. Okay. Daenerys 6. A wine merchant attempts to poison Daenerys, which compels Khal Drogo to attack the Seven Kingdoms. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Catelyn 8. Catelyn and Rob refine their war plans after meeting in Moat Caneland. Exciting stuff. War plans. Jeff stuff. Oh, this, this is going to be fish oh, talk. This, yeah. This, that's his That's his chapter right there. Of course, it's a Catelyn chapter. Well, I mean, she's done nothing oh, yeah. wrong except for that one thing ever. Uh, <laughs> Tyrion 7, escorted by the Mountain Men of the Vale. Tywin and Tyrion discuss war plans, again, a Jeff chapter, and offer rich rewards if they fight in the oncoming battle. And then you have Sansa 5, which is, you know, one of our chapters, right? Yeah. Sansa pleads mercy for her father at Joffrey's first court, holding after Barristan Selmy is dismissed from the Kingsguard gasp. And then from Eddard 15, Eliana, get ready for this. I'm going to do another <gasps> Matt's crazy movie oh. movie quote and see if you can guess what it oh, is. okay. It's, Dad, what's he doing? Oh, my God. Matt, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Independence Day. Oh, No. When that guy yells in the in the bunker and what's his name is flying the airplane up into the thing. Nope. Mm-mm. No. Sorry, God wrong podcast. Nope. Yep. That, that's for the listeners. You guys will get it after I told <laughs> you. <laughs> oh god. Catalan nine. Catalan negotiates crossing the Green Fork with Walder Frey. And that brings us to John eight, where J.R. Mormont gives John a gift from his ancestral home, and Maester Aemon explains his empathies when it comes to family loyalty revealing that he too oh wait sorry not he too he don't know that yet revealing that he is a targaryen by conversation's end so jor Morma and Jon snow open this chapter discussing their well-being since that whole crazy white situation we just dealt with uh john's hand is bandaged and he's lost mobility in that hand currently maester aemon has given him milk of the poppy and it's giving him terrible dreams and when at last he did sleep, he dreamt, and that was even worse. In the dream, the course he fought had blue eyes, black hands, and his father's face, but he dared not tell Mormont that. Which, this reminds me a lot that right around this time in the books, uh, close to, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we just had Eddard's last chapter, and uh, soon he's about to die. It's similar kind of to that dream that brings Bran and Rick into the crypts, right? They're all having mm. these starkly dreams. Yeah, and, and, and seeing what Ned's fate is about to be and you know you bring that up and also like it's kind of interesting like the way the whole book is structured it's kind of like uh George George thinks these things through right because mm. um in Eddard 15 Ned is going in between like 
he's going in between like sleep and nod because he's injured and in the dark. And so is John, uh, because he also doesn't like those terrible dreams from the milk of the poppy. So you got some got some parallels, maybe some thematic resonance. Is that some people thematic say? resonance? <laughs> No, absolutely. Uh, obviously, we know there's a bajillion parallels with them, and uh, very interesting that he's uh, he's getting that milk of the poppy right now, just like Ned. That's where Ned is in the cells. Exactly. And then uh, one thing I liked. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say one thing I particularly liked about this conversation is that on the f- and like the whole chapter is basically that John is not catching anything being said to him, like. There's tons of subtext being thrown at him by J.O.R. and Eamon and his friends. And he's kind of in a place where he has like no Fs left to give. So normally a character who's very observant and sees through, th- sees through things, everything's going over his head. So Mormont asks him about his hand, but Mormont already knows that his hand will be fine eventually. It's, it's just kind of this weird guy talk thing um, where... You ask about something innocuous because you're two tough guys, so you can't really talk about your emotions and your feelings and what just happened to you because they went through a traumatic experience. Both of them almost died. John's going through emotional turmoil from during the Night's Watch and Rob going south and Ned being arrested and what's happening with his sisters, but J.R. can't ask that. So he asks about his hand instead. But John's kind of a bit of a dummy here and thinks J.R. is literally asking about his hand. Well, it's funny because John is doing that like this whole chapter, like, you truly get to understand that you know nothing, Jon Snow, especially in this chapter, mm-hmm. because he doesn't understand the things he's hearing, right? Like, is telling yeah. him stuff, and he's like, ah, no, don't get it, and I'm just pissed right now. And Eamon's like, I'm telling you all these things. Listen with your ears, boy. And he's like, no, not my dad. And it's like, John, <laughs> you're not my dad! Literally says that. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you're not my dad. <laughs> it reminds me of, Eliana won't get this, uh, but in Hamilton... Oh. <laughs> in Fuck Hamilton, you. there's this scene oh, wow. between George Washington and uh, Hamilton where George Washington is like kind of like treating him like his son. And he's like, son? And Hamilton's like, I'm not your son. And that's all I think of with J.R. Mormont and John. Oh, like, it's always like, son, I'm not your son. So I love it. <laughs> that's what I hear. <laughs> oh, he's so moody. Yeah, I love it. He's, he's very moody. Such a and the best boy. part about this, about this chapter is that. Everything that happens to him from beginning to start, beginning to end, has basically been scripted. Jor and Amon. Would you say from Whoa. start to finish? Oh, start to finish. Amon and Jor basically planned out both these conversations. All their friends knew it was going to happen. They knew they knew he was going to get the sword. Knew he was going to go talk to them. Basically, in that order. Only John believes that this is like a genuine interaction he's <gasps> having. Everyone else knows it's like he's being led around by his nose. They're just, they're just like he's such a small boy. I do love that yeah. in this too, especially the conversation as well. I mean. As we learned, Sam is the reason for all this. Like he, and it yeah. really kind mm-hmm. of uh, it etches that outline for when Sam goes behind his back with the Lord Commander stuff later on as well. The children, the 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 adults on the Night's Watch are just like the children are so predictable, and they're just like <laughs> putting their head in their hands, and they're just like, oh my god, what are they doing? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, they're discussing the rangers that came back without Benjamin. John is like, was there a raven about my father? But it was only of Barris and Selny's dismissal <laughs> and escape. <laughs> was that yeah, John that was for a second? John Thank Snow, you. are you here? <laughs> it gets better every <laughs> single time, I feel like. What do you think? It really Thank does. You. I love your John voices. I was, I, you know that. You know yeah, we were just discussing their favorite there was, there was voices a... this weekend of ours, and this is a good one. <laughs> There was a subtle mix there between Kit and John. Kit and John, not the like quite, an not the same, the kit and John? not the same character. 
The kitten John, uh, kitten John the Umber. Kitten John. I did yeah. love this little passage uh, where Jor is talking about, you know, what's happening with, you know, the Iron Throne and Barrison's dismissal and how brave and noble Barrison is, and I can't believe it. And he goes, "We have white shadows in the woods and unquiet dead stalking our halls, and a boy sits the Iron Throne." He sat in disgust. The Laven, the Laven, the Raven laughed shrilly. <laughs> boy, 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 boy. Okay, foreshadowing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> There's also a funny part here. Um, you guys were talking about this in your previous John episodes that you can read all these back knowing RLJ. So if John was recognized as who he really is, he probably would be the same boy on the Iron Throne JR is scoffing at at this very yeah. moment. Oh, absolutely. But just way more emo. He's a, Yeah, he's scoffing at the literal prince, the guy that maybe should probably be king <laughs> to his face. And nobody knows it happened. Literally all of John's <laughs> chapters, though. Only the bird. Yeah. Only the birds yeah. know. Just Blood Raven. <laughs> and then John asks about his sisters because there's a lot of things that people don't know in this chapter. Like, how are the Stark girls, right? <laughs> and there's been no word of them. Just like there was no word of his brother riding south until, as as we discussed earlier, Samuel Charlie giving him the news. It troubled him more than he could say. Rob was marching, and he was not. No matter how often John told himself that this place. That his place was here now, his new brothers on the wall, he still felt craven. Mm, Were you convincing, John? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, mildly unrelated, but I'm gonna I'm gonna voice my opinions anyway because this is my podcast. <laughs> Sam apparently repeatedly, constantly telling John like I shouldn't be doing this, I really shouldn't be doing this, as he continues to do it and tell John about <laughs> it. Reminds me of that scene in Twenty Seven Dresses, you know, when Catherine Heigl and James Marsden finally hook up in the car, and apparently the whole time she just keeps going like I never do this, I never do this. That's that's the take. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good take. Uh, there's also some some interesting parts of this conversation. Um, for one thing, that. John is obsessed with what's happening with Ned throughout this entire mm. chapter. He basically does not stink- stop thinking about Ned. And then J.R., I'm not sure if consciously or unconsciously, basically steps in and John has a chance to talk to him. He's getting out a lot of his anger at what's happening to him. and But also kind of this weird anger that he feels like he's getting like the Walmart version of the Stark legacy. That, that comes up later with the sword and like what it means to be a brother of the Night- Night's Watch. And also, if you think about it sort of, as a meta level, so he goes from Jor to Aemon, so mm. he's going from basically a character of ice to a character of fire mm. at the wall, telling him to stay on the wall and do his duty. I also like the, uh, there's another part to this that, um, like I said earlier, Jor obviously knows John's hand's going to be fine, because we find out later that he's been getting the sword ready for him. Mm. So... But John is essentially being lied to almost his entire conversation by J.R. And actually, John picks up on it in his one moment of insight. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aww. and it's interesting what you Aww. say there because it is that kind of that punch of like, J.R. is making sure John's nice and drugged and here's a nice little sword boy. And he knows what's happening with his family. I mean, he's getting all this information with him, yeah. like you said. And he's like, all right, I'm going to give you the sword. John's going to be, you know, he should be happy and grateful and really pleased about it. And then he sends him off to aim and, you know, gets Sam plants the information. And that's the thing. It's very like, you know, Sam would tell him. Jor knows Sam would tell him. Eamon knows Sam would tell him. Like, there's no way Sam would not tell John. They know this. They wouldn't set it up that way otherwise. Yeah. They knew that he would tell him just like he does a bunch of other shit in the series. And uh, then they knew they could kind of <laughs> do their thing and say, you're one of us now, kid. Like... You need to make your loyalties known. We need to trust you. 
there's actually a moment where jr kind of bellowed out loud just kind of like oh why does everybody know everything before me and john just kind of comments and turns like hmm he doesn't seem to want an answer <laughs> to that it's like yeah no shit <laughs> oh well i do i like that insight it is a okay. typical guy conversation where it's kind of like asking about how's the job doing how's the wife doing how's your car you're not actually asking Small about talk. any of those things you're asking yeah you're asking about how they're doing personally yeah yeah, I, and, and yes, I do like that male perspective of like, this is how guy conversations are. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you for being here, Matt. <laughs> we always want to have diversity on this uh, this podcast. You know? <laughs> it gets a little Gosh. gets a little girly up in here, you know, too. Oh, no. You got to have a few two more chick white bros hanging out. Uh, <laughs> so Jayor is curious about how long John is going to take to recover because he wants to give him a gift that he can use. And the gift, of course, is a firebolt. He could throw away his Nimbus 2001 <gasps> finally. Yes, this is what I've been waiting for for so long. <laughs> it, it, honestly, it's so funny because this is very YA, right? Like, it's so fellowship. Each character has their character trait. Pip is Hermione. Gren is Ron, the dumb one. Sam is Neville. Alistair is Snape. Uh, it, it's just very set up like a youth fiction novel, a young adult novel. And I, I do like it because... A lot of these characters, especially in like Arya and Sansa's plots, they are forced right away to grow up so fast. And yes, John is being yeah. forced to grow up still on the wall, but he's also forging these friendships. And we don't really see, for example, Sansa doesn't get to forge friendships like these, right? In her p- chapters, she doesn't get to have friends. The friends she has use her for her claim and sell her off to other people. Uh, Arya mm-hmm. ends up getting stuck with, you know, the Brotherhood for a bit. And she does make friends before the Brotherhood, which I think is really nice. And that's kind of her little youth fiction-y bits of her also horrific, horrific plot. Uh, Hall, I wouldn't call fun, happy youth fiction times. But, you know, it's, a, it's interesting to see what yeah. the Starks do when they're put in these situations where they're allowed to have friends or not. Even looking at Rob, Rob isn't allowed to really have friends, especially after Theon. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, that isolation is like a big thing that happens to a lot of these young people and they learn to cope with that in different ways. I want to point out, though, that you said that Pip is Hermione and Gren is Ron. And I think what you're also saying is that my Pip and Gren ship is canon. Yes. Um, <laughs> Pen. So it's, it's grip. your... Huh? Grip. P- <laughs> grip. Ooh, oh, grip. Mm. Oh, Ooh, that's that's a title. That's a that's a fanfic <laughs> title somewhere. <laughs> I think you could title it "Thick as a Castle Wall." Maybe. Uh, oh, with two C's. That's also there. Yeah. Thick. Um, it's Jared Mormont's family sword, and he is giving it to John because you remember that guy Jorah. So, so his son dishonored the entire house, brought dishonor upon his whole house with his actions, and he left the sword behind when he fled. So today I was talking uh, to poor Quentin. Him and Brenda B. Fish. I don't know if you've heard of them. They have a little cast called Not a Cast. They're doing an episode on Danny soon, and they were looking at this episode. And uh, there's this quote from Jorah when he's saying to Danny, you know, like, hey, we have these kids left. We could sell these kids. These boys are, you know, if they're under 10, they're going to be worth more. Blah, blah, blah. These ones are going to be worth oh less. So we could sell it for gold for a ship. And I'm like, yep, Jorah's great. Great character. <laughs> Jorah's a nice guy, oh though. Gosh. I don't know why Khaleesi doesn't like him. Uh, yeah. So There's nothing nice. that, you know, gets me more wet than people trying to sell off children. It was just slavery. gross when I realized, like, that, oh, that's such a gross, like, oh my God. line. Um, yeah. But I do love the passage that comes after this with the Lord Commander. I think it's very important. 
When John had been Bran's age, he had dreamed of doing great deeds, and as boys always did. The details of his feats changed with every dreaming, but quite often he imagined saving his father's life. Afterward, Lord Eddard would declare that John had proven himself a true Stark and placed ice in his hand. Even then, he had known it was only a child's folly. No bastard could ever hope to wield a father's sword. Even the memory shamed him. What kind of man stole his own brother's birthright? I have no right to this, he thought, no more than to ice. He twitched his burned fingers, feeling a throb of pain deep under the skin. My lord, you honor me, but- Spare me your butts, boy, Lord Mormont interrupted. I would not be sitting here if it not for you and that beast of yours. You fought bravely, and more to the point, you thought quickly. Fire! Yes, damn it! We ought to have known. We ought to have remembered. The long night has come before. Oh, eight thousand years is a good while to be sure. Yet, if the Night's Watch does not remember, who will? Who will? chimed the talkative raven. Who will? Are you happy? Are you content? <laughs> I, I actually really I am. I think this sword is really interesting. It, it reminds me a lot. The whole sword scene reminds me a ton of his dreams on the crypts. Uh, he's obviously, you know, this sword rejects not his heritage. It's not the thing he wants. It's the same thing as when Stannis offers him Winterfell and he thinks, you know, I mm-hmm. could do it, but it's not mine. I'm not allowed to have it. It's it's that line of, you know, later on we're going to read eventually when uh, it's that line of, you know, like, I'm aiming the Dragon Knight. I'm the Lord of Winterfell. No, you're not. You can't be the Lord of Winterfell. You're a bastard. You know, uh, it, it's a symbol of his heritage, but not. It's something he could never grasp. It's something he could never have. It's not ice, and he could never have it as much as he has. You're not a real Stark. And, of course, it's this very, very heavy-handed writing now that we know the truth. You know, later after you reread and you realize what his true birth is, you know, he's always had the rights to all of these swords. He's had the rights to any sword this goddamn man wants. Oh, it's true. It's um, it's one of those weird things where as John progresses as a character, his internal fantasies are usually they evolve from being given to taking things. Mm. He really like wants to like in his darkest fantasies, he wants to beat the crap out of Rob and take Winterfell from him. He doesn't want Eddard to really give it to him. And that's part of, I think, his anger in this episode is it feels like he's being given things that he thinks he doesn't deserve. He wants to He wants the choice, the choice to be a real Stark. And he's never, it's very much like Theon in that way, like we just talked about in all of Theon's chapters, that he has always wanted to be a Stark. He wanted to prove himself. He wanted to, you know, like make Ned proud. He wanted to feel honorable. He wants that legacy that Ned has and he wants to carry it on, but he never was allowed to. Yeah. And and a lot of the book is about choices having consequences and each one has consequences right we see that a little later on of the consequences of choosing to stay at the wall from maester aemon and we see also the consequences of choosing to march on winterfell and take it through theon's perspective so there's no necessarily right answer there there are different kinds of answers and along with um you know the sword being a symbol of his heritage as you've all pointed out it's also i think john in this moment um, and I don't mean this to be as humorous as it is, but I'm going to say it, that the grip was virgin leather, yeah. soft and black, as yet unstained by sweat or blood. And, like, that is who John is in this moment. Like, I mean, yeah, he's killed some whites, but he's very much still a green boy, right? Um, he's a virgin, not only sexually, but, like, to battle and a lot of what life is about and not yet hardened. Uh, and... Of course, as many people are going to point out, it's a bastard sword, whatever. And it's also <laughs> lighter than ice, just as John 
describes himself. He is slimmer and more lithe uh, than Rob. And I also think it's kind of, this is, this is definitely just pulling this out of nowhere, but I'm going to just say it anyway, because I think it's kind of fun that because of the damage to his right hand, he grips it with his left. Um, and it, it reminds me, uh, because someone else somewhere on the internet, I forgot who, was bringing up again that Maisie Williams switched to using her left hand for a lot of the practices because Arya is also left-handed. So in a way, it's like John having a connection again with his sister through the swords, but also, of course, Harold's back. Like the, the injury of hand, sword hands, I think, is a thing that runs throughout the story and how that plays with identity. You'll see it, of course, with Jamie, but like that's the, that's the extreme case. It's interesting, too, that you see it with the opposite mirror of Catelyn's hand as well. Uh, after the attack, oh, yes. she also loses. Something I always notice, and I feel like people forget, she has very limited mobility in that hand. She thinks about it all through her yeah. Storm of Swords chapters. So later on, when John is always flexing his hand, as we, I feel like it happens more and more in each book. Like a dance with dragons, you're like, do you do anything else, John, mm-hmm. besides like send your friends away and flex your hand? Uh, but he, uh, it also kind of reminds me of Liana. With that idea that Arya also mm. is left-handed and the slim sword. And I wonder if that's also kind of meant to remind you of Lyanna eventually. That, like, you know, it's that connection, like you said, to Arya. It's that connection to being a Stark and him actually being part Stark. Yeah. Mm. He's still connected with his family. He's got a wolf yeah. after all. Oh. He does have a wolf. And Oh. <laughs> and, um... I, I really liked looking at this exact moment because it's something you actually see a lot in TV and movies where somebody takes an important object and slams it down on the table mm. in front of you and waits to see what you see, what you what you do with it. Because as I pointed out earlier, this conversation was set up by Jr. He knows that he knows John's hand's going to be fine. He knows he's going to be able to use the sword, and he slams it down in front of him every, anyway, knowing how much John probably wants ice, knowing how much he wants glory that he he audibly complained about not being a ranger and also the fact that he has made it known to everybody that he recently almost deserted to go down south and fight so jr gives him a sword and say all right what are you going to do with this sword this is the most valuable sword you will ever have you could use it here on the wall and have your honor or you could take it and run south and be somebody on the battlefield like a member of like that people write songs about in your brother's war but it's also kind of, again, when we take his Targaryen lineage into effect, you can also see it as Blackfire and Daemon mm-hmm. Blackfire. The, the giving a Targaryen a Valyrian steel sword has huge implications in George's world. Yeah. Although right. Jor doesn't know that. <laughs> Ironically, because it's like you are in the north where the others are that are killing your men. Snowmen. The snowmen. You're John Snow. Snowman. <laughs> oh. So John thinks about the white burning and he thinks on that nightmare and reflects on it once more. Yet in his nightmare, he faced it again. And this time the burning corpse wore Lord Eddard's features. It was his father's skin that burst and blackened. His father's eyes that ran liquid down his cheeks like jellied tears. John did not understand why that should be or what it might mean, but it frightened him more than he could say. Ugh, that's some horror. I love it. Hmm. That's some crazy stuff right there. Some classic germ horror. I, I also like the questioning at the end of it. This was something I picked up on while I was rereading. John asks himself a lot of questions in this chapter, mostly because he doesn't have the mental energy for it. But it's like, it's also George asking you, basically, a lot of the other characters interpret their own dreams. John is this one. He's like, all right, what do you, the reader, think? So this was my take at it <laughs> because I was so interested just honing in on George saying this is important. Why is it important? 
And John has a lot of anger in this chapter because he has, uh, in his mind, he has not joined the Night's Watch. He has abandoned House Stark. He has given up his family. He's given up his brothers and his sisters and his father and even Catelyn and Theon and to go sit at the wall while they fight and die. And when he sees Ned dying like that, it's it's because he's imagining that Eddard's going to die and Rob's going to die because of his actions, that he's not there to save him, which works really well because in his first chapter, he thinks of himself as uh, Daron the young dragon who died at 18 going south and conquering. It's like, John, we all know you have a really high opinion of yourself, and it's kind of adorable that in his subconscious, he thinks him being at the wall will be the difference between the Starks winning and losing. Yeah. Mormont then asks John to accept the sword as payment, sort of, or thanks for saving his life. And John finally agrees, but he also thinks, He is not my father. The thought leapt unbidden to John's mind. Lord Stark is my father. I will not forget him, no matter how many swords they give me. Yet he could scarcely tell Lord Mormont that it was another man's sword he dreamt mm. of. Oh my! <laughs> Another man's sword. I know, right? The the virgin <laughs> the virgin leather. Yeah. Again, here this is um, re- John instantly going to anger at his father, mm. where the the how he was treated, how he was left to the side, how he's treated as a bastard, even though he desperately wants his attention. And here is his father figure, his new father figure, his new Ned, handing him yeah. what he wants, and he can't take it. And especially because, just like in universe. Being given a Valyrian steel sword, even like besides being a Targaryen, is a huge deal. Tywin Lannister has been on crusade his entire life to replace Bright Roar. Yeah. He would give up all the gold and cash that he rocked for what Jon just got, and he doesn't want it. Because what he really wants is his dad, and he wants his approval, which is kind of sweet. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's that kind of idea is going to play into some of Jon's story later on, but we'll get to that. Um... Oh, this, this is also very similar to Theon. Oh, absolutely. I the, like the desire to like remember the part that's super like Theon is that Theon desperately wants Ned's approval, but he always says he feels the sword between them. John feels that kind of separation too, although it's less obliquely violent. Mm-hmm. It he still feels that, but no matter even though they get mis what they feel is mistreated by their by their surrogate father, they still desperately want their attention and approval. Mm. And it's interesting you say that sword between them quote because it's kind of the opposite for John. It's Catelyn between the sword Mm. and him. Uh, That sword between them actually would go to him, but he, you know, that stigma that Catelyn has to him and that, like you said, he's mad at his dad. And I'm just going to move this up real quick. I won't talk in depth depth, but he's mad. Mad. He's mad at him, you know? Uh, And he won't admit it because... You can't admit being mad at honorable Lord Eddard, you know, his dad, who he wants he wants to be like, and he wants to just, like, become when he gets older, and he, like, loves so much, and he's mad at his dad, and he's coming to terms with that on the wall. Oh, for sure. <sighs> the wrestling and, like, the, the gift or approval of the father stuff that uh, will echo later on in his story, like, it, it's a key part of what a hero struggles with in the hero's journey. And, um, you know, you were talking about the Blackfires earlier, Matt, and I know that the Blackfires, of course, like, I don't know, whatever. It doesn't matter that they're not conceived of until a few books later. But, um, you know, the repetition of, like, this idea of the sword, and then Sam's going to be reminded of Heartsbane later on here, like, in, in 
the previous chapters, right? When he talks about his own family history with Randall Charlie. Um, as you were saying, like, there's a lot of significance to that. Um, Blackfire has caused a lot of civil wars, right? Like, there's that mm-hmm. idea that swords and inheritance and ruling and leadership are all intertwined with one another. And that we see also through Sam's stories, like, when he was no longer heir to Horn Hill, he doesn't get Heartsbane. His younger brother Dickon does. Like, that was a thing that was intentionally withheld from him. And then Jorah... When he stops being Lord of Bear Island, like the one fucking good thing that he ever does is like leave behind Longclaw. <laughs> I guess he does some stuff in this episode, but whatever. Like, I don't know. That's a di- that's a different that's a different drawer. It really is a different drawer, though. Um, and then it goes back to Jira, but like as you, you know, as you say, we should like kind of read some of this as like acceptance, but not like Sam said in previous chapters talking to John that he's being groomed for command and you can kind of see how Jor sees those things in John maybe or kind of hopes for John as being something like an heir or a future Lord Commander to the new house, the Night's Watch and like yeah, like John yearns for another sword and we see earlier on in the chapter he kind of goes like no bastard could ever hope to wield a father's sword, even the memory shamed him. What kind of man stole his own brother's birthright? I have no right to this. He thought no more than to ice. And as you were saying, there's like a lot of guilt. And um, you see some of those darker things fulfilled more in Theon. But I also kind of get these like biblical vibes here. Um, mm, very true. Like that struggle between brothers. Whereas here though, like they're, you know, whether it's bastard or trueborn, and we know, sure, that John is like a Targaryen right now, but he doesn't know that, whatever. But that idea of like <laughs> birthright or like of acceptance, and you see that um, desire for like birthright and acceptance being wrapped up in one another in stories of like Cain and Abel and also in Jacob and Esau and I feel like you're kind of getting some of those shades here and I think uh, you and I talked a lot about that before in an episode that you had uh, Matt uh, where we talked about the second second sons bastards and things like that in the story yeah that's actually the uh, uh, Patreon exclusive thing for me um, which people can access where we talk really about the this running theme of second son's bastard we i think we called it um cripples bastard and broken things Tyrion's line because it's it's the idea of grasping a sword aka grasping violence or valyrian steel grasping magic in order to overthrow the trueborn i mean that's basically what we know about the myth version of the night king where it's implied heavily that he was actually brandon snow an analog to john and his brother brandon stark the breaker had to beat him and it's very much the relationship between John and actually, I mean, the obvious one is Rob, but also the rivalry between Theon and John pops up a lot. But in this moment, J.R. is basically adopting John and he's telling him, you've done great. Everything you ever want, you can have it here at the wall. And John can't accept that. He said, you're doing amazing, sweetie. Yeah, that's literally what this was. He's like, you did so good. I'm going to give you a treasure worth more than a mountain. And John's like, I'm not worth that. Aww. John. It's very hard. That that's that was that question George asked with the with the Ned dream. Why is John so angry? All of these things. It's very, very complicated why John's so angry in this chapter. And puberty. Yeah, puberty. Puberty's a bitch. Yeah, absolutely. Emotions. <laughs> uh they call the sword Longclaw. He's had the pommel changed out from a bear to a wolf, which uh we actually later find out his friends helped you mm. ah 
And then uh, John throws J.R. a bone, basically, and he says, you know, wolves have claws as much as bears, and the old bear just kind of smiles, like, hey, maybe you're on board a little bit. Thanks, new son. <laughs> Cute. So not only is John getting the sword as a present, but Mormont is giving him yet another present. Alistair Thorne is sailing away to take the zombie hand to King's Landing, which is a clever plot that they actually stole from the original source work oh of Game of Thrones, who did it on a way larger scale. And it had more intrigue and meaning. It really was just a more cinematic experience. Wow. Wow. Thank you. All right. I'll be here all day. <laughs> Mormon, of course, does this purposefully. And then he warns John that I didn't forget about that incident in the hall, you know, like where... John goes and tries to wail on Alistair Thorne. Worth it. Hashtag worth it. <laughs> that's why I'm giving you the sword, yeah. he says. I was sorry. actually, he's like, I too wanted to do that. I mean, that's what it means, I I think. I mean, that is, it is actually a bit of subtext. Yeah. He did smile. Yes. He's like, I mean, yeah, he's kind of a dick. But anyway, he sends John, then he's like, all right, I want you to go get me some wine. Make sure it's a good wine. Make sure there's a shit ton of spices. All right. Do it right. Yeah, Take make sure my time. food doesn't suck. Maester Eamon will talk to you while you wait for it yeah. to be the best. Don't give me any fucking mutton. And then the guards all compliment him on his new steel. Six, six sword, bruh. I, I love the passage that comes with that because the guards are actually being like completely yeah. sincere. They're like, wow, you really deserve it. Like, that's awesome. Like, you were badass last week or the other day. You like, you fucking saved everyone in the universe. Like, that white, t- this white took out like five people already. One of the whites, not this yeah. one. The other one did. But there's this passage, he knew he should be pleased, yet he did not feel it. His hand ached, and the taste of anger was in his mouth, though he could not said he could not have said who he was angry with or why. Hot take, you're mad at your dad, kid, the entire book. You learned that, you know, it, your parents sometimes don't hold up to what you realize they should. You're mad at him. You're mad at him for the way you were treated. It all comes out, and... In fact, speaking of youth fiction, it reminds me of Sisterhood of the Traveling mm. Pants when one of the characters, Carmen, wow. goes to visit her dad who got a divorce from her mom and yada, yada, yada. He has a whole new life with a whole new family. And that's kind of what happens to John, right? Ned gets a whole new life with Catalan and her kids. And he doesn't say shit to her about how she treats John, even though all he did was be born. You know, like he didn't ask for this shit. Uh, but Carmen visits her dad and finally at the end of the summer, like she leaves, she gets into it because she just doesn't fit in anymore with this family. And she finally calls him from home when she goes home to her mom's and she just like lets him have it. She's like, I'm mad at you. Like, why do you, why were you ashamed of me? Were you ashamed of me growing up? Like, were you ashamed of me? And that's what John's going mm-hmm. through. You know, it's like all this shit that now that Ned's in the fucking black cells, he can't say this to him. He doesn't, he'll never get to know. He'll never get to talk to him. He can't go save him, but he also like is mad at him. And it's like, he'll never get mm. this closure from him that he needs. Yeah. It was very kind of JR to stand in for Ned there, to really take John's anger and really not acknowledge it. Yeah. And I mean, like this entire, this entire dilemma of John's, right? The way that he feels about Ned, it's always been there. It's a big part, of course, of Game of Thrones. I think it takes a little, it's still there, but kind of more of a backseat as opposed to like this whole thing with Ned like and especially with Ned being captured and as you said like there's that fear that there won't ever be that closure like that's why this is like very much the climax of Jon's a Game of Thrones storyline like this dilemma the the part with the actions and the whites that's like one chapter but this whole choice that he has to make spans three chapters like this is a huge deal for Jon 
Um, and then as soon as John hits the granary doors, Ron, Hermione, and Neville, aka Pip, Gren, and Sam, are all waiting to look at his new broomstick. Oh, oh, look at this quote that we have here. Oh, wait. I show up in the books, you guys. I'm in the You're books. You're in the books. I'm so, I'm so happy about this. I couldn't believe this. I was actually, I'd never even know this. I was reading this uh, last night to get ready for this. I'm like, <gasps> I'm there. I'm in it. Hey, you. So, so Matt, the sword. Matt insisted. The others took up the chant. The, the sword! The sword! The sword! John unsheathed Longclaw and showed it to them, turning it this way and that so they could admire it. The bastard blade glittered in the pale sunlight, dark and deadly. Valyrian steel, he declared solemnly, trying to sound as pleased and proud as he ought to have felt. John, you're such a drama queen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really trying to embody uh, that when I do John. I should have been like, Valyrian steel. Oh my gosh. Just like real sassy. Uh, Actually, that's how Joffrey would set it. That's true. You're right. You're right. <laughs> and But he's just like performing it. Um, I know that we're all appreciating Matt here, but I also really want to appreciate mm-hmm. the character Toad, who has a line like a few, a, a little bit earlier, who says that, you know, John's like, what do you guys want to see? And Toad's like, we want to see your rosy butt cheeks. And I mean, like, there's there's a lot of fans who do want to see John's, I guess, cheeks. But Chloe and I share a similar take. Chloe, please oh, enlighten the um, listeners. The listeners. Yes. Uh, my, my big take is that John's ass is a boy ass. And Jamie Lannister's ass is a man ass. It's a daddy ass. Yeah, that's canon. That's canon. It's Does not that canon. mean Jamie wears, like, dad jeans? Sure. Oh, I'd he wears them. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes he doesn't wear them too, and it's even better then. <laughs> yep. 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 And then Pip <laughs> jokes that John is the first person to get a sword for burning down a tower. Pretty funny. And then John thinks on how the undead Jaffer had killed Jeremy Riker and four other men. Yikes. Oops. Yeah. He takes off and he goes to get that supper for Jayor, and he thinks his friends meant well, but they did not understand. It was not their fault, truly. They had not had to face Other. They had not seen the pale glow of those dead blue eyes, had not felt the cold of those dead black fingers. We get it, Harry. Voldemort's coming. Uh, <laughs> it's very, like, ugh, arrogant hero. And this is actually why, like, when I was younger reading the Harry Potter books, I hated Harry. I was like, mm. you're boring. You, you just <laughs> fully yourself and boring. We get it. Your life is so hard, orphan boy. And sometimes I'm like, John, come on. But it's funny because he has seen death. I mean, he's seen it up close. He's the first character to really, like, see, see it and deal with it, right? Uh, And it goes on. Like, he's the only person that really takes it seriously. Him and Sam. Yeah. And then as John reaches his cell, Ghost continues to be cute as fuck and huge and fluffy. And again, I have many regrets in life. Even though I was just saying I have no regrets in life the other day, I do have at least one. And John thinking is about it. Um, and John is thinking on when Ghost finds him. And then John is thinking back to when he first found Ghost. He was all alone, he thought, apart from the others in the litter. He was different, so they drove him out. And obviously, John is thinking about himself here, and we're going to quote uh, mm-hmm. Riverdale. In case you haven't noticed, I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. I don't fit in and don't want oh to fit God. in. Have you ever seen me without this stupid hat on? John Head. <laughs> oh my God. It's the key. <laughs> That's real. John Head. Like Jughead. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh, John, in that moment. 
I think it's funny that he's also kind of projecting on that because Ghost was not driven out. He's the only one with its eyes open. So it was actually better than the other direwolves in that moment. It had gone out with its eyes open into the world and left its littermates behind. Just kind of interesting. Uh, I also, this is part of a theory I wrote a long time ago uh, that it's called, it has a stupid name. It's called Deus Ex Lupo. And it was talking about basically how Ghost is his own character, like almost like human level intelligence, basically. Hmm. And this is one of the quotes that I used because, so John here confirms that um, he heard Ghost make a noise and then he turned around and saw him, went to go pick him up. But you actually go back to Brand 1 where you see this. Um, there's actually tons of noise around there. The horses are all clattering over the bridge. The little direwolf pups are making noise. Everybody's talking. So John, no one, like nobody heard ghost really just mm-hmm. John. And he was like in the middle of the group turns around, sees him and goes over to it. So it's one of those kind of moments of magic and destiny. I think that John was riding away and ghost sort of like reached out or somebody reached out and poked John in his in like his magical brain and said, "Go back, you forgot your wolf." Yes. I just looked too, just for funsies, because I wanted to check uh check the chapter and just see if there was anything else in there that had anything to do with like mists or fog or anything, but mm. there isn't. And then it's like obviously there wouldn't because it's from Bran, but wouldn't it be cool if we just got like a gray mist in a John version of that chapter, so you know it was totally Blood Raven fucking with it? <laughs> uh, there is uh, the leaves rustling, which sometimes yes. are the green seers. Uh, in my theory, I actually suggest that it was Ghost calling out to John because they have oh. such a strong connection. Aww. Aww. And that makes me think of like that lady quote, you know, where Sansa yes. like whimpers and thinks of Lady after she dreams of her. Uh, I, I like that passage a lot though because it's just very john it know, is like, that is who he is that's even from the very first line that like he's a runt he's small he's not like the rest he's white with red eyes like the old gods uh it's interesting that it connects it to him and i love the transitional qualities of that phrase because as it they say apart from the others in the litter he was different so they drove him out sam shows up so it's mm. obvious that great just boom there's Sam, which this quote is also kind of about, uh, which explains their brothership and their relationship and why they share that close bond. John asks if Sam wants to see the sword, but that makes Sam think of his father's sword and he declines. Uh, that would probably bring up some horrible memories. So instead, he tells him that Maester Aemon wants to see him and John is immediately angry and cold with him because he knows Sam told Eamon about telling John about Rob. How dare. Uh, and I know. Betrayal. Oh, no. <laughs> betrayal. After Sam told him every secret he's not supposed to tell. Oh, right, Sam, Sam said one back. He's like, how dare you? Yeah. So John takes off and he goes to Maester Aemon and Aemon starts having John help him do chores, right? He's like, feed the ravens with this meat. And he's just like, ah, blah, 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 tell you about crows and ravens, which I love actually the difference. Uh, it reminds me as he discusses the difference between the ravens and crows. It reminds me of that line from Septon Maribald, hmm. Airhorn Sir- Sirens, uh, when he says there are many sorts of outlaws and many types of birds. Birds just get so many different references and comparisons in this book, whether it's that or whether it's Sansa, uh, Littlefinger, Burb. Borbs. <laughs> Forbes. I did some uh, hashtag analysis actually on the bird feeding because I was. This was another one of those times when George had John ask a question to the reader, where he said later, "John wished he understood what they were talking about and why. What did he care about ravens and doves? If the old man had something to say to him, why couldn't he just say it?" 
So again, I went back. I'm like, okay, so what's Eamon actually saying? And this first part of it is he's talking about all the different kind of birds like in Westeros. And the subtext there is there's lots of different kind of birds, but not all of them are suited to life in the Night's Watch. Hmm. They need certain kinds of birds, basically ravens, ones that are hardy, one that can do the jobs that they're given. And it's... And it's sort of, it leads into also JR's giving him the sword and the command grooming he's getting where Eamon is subtly telling him, you're the bird we want, John. You're that burb. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> he's that burb. And then uh, he goes on to say something about the crow is the raven's poor cousin. They are both beggars in black, hated and misunderstood. Well, Night's Watch brothers are sometimes called like the begging brothers mm. because they go around to castle to castle. So what he's saying there is... Whether or not, John, you're a bastard or a trueborn, you join our brotherhood and you'll be like us. We're all hated, but at least we're together. You'll have a family. Birds of a feather. And then birds of a feather, exactly. And the last one is um, he said, uh, John mentions that Mormon's raven likes like wheat and fruit. And, and Amon responds, well, some of them prefer flesh. It makes them strong. But I fear, and I fear they relish the taste of blood in that, in that they are like men. And then he says... Like men, not all ravens are alike. And with the fact that Borma just gave him that sword, it's another subtle message mm-hmm. from Eamon where he's saying, once you start tasting blood, you never stop wanting it. Because he's seen it through his life as a Targaryen prince and all those rebellions that happened where if you go south, you get your vengeance, you go with Rob, mm. you're not going to like who you turn into. Uh, also, is this like, this is totally... This is what I'm imagining they did for Waymer, right? Like, this is them going, John, mm. you're the next Waymer Royce, which I'm sure you could appreciate, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that very much, Chloe. I love that. I'm doing Joe Magician oh. analysis <laughs> now. Are you proud? You need, you need more <laughs> random quotes about Craster, and uh-huh. then you're there. I wait, I have a bad take. So we're talking about John becoming a raven ant slash or crow, <laughs> some sort of big boar. And, you know, we get Maester Eamon talking about how he used to tell his younger brother, kill the man and kill the boy and let the man be born. Is it because John is not yet a bird? Is he still just an egg? He is an egg. Exactly. This isn't the worst take I've ever had. I would like to point that out. Well, that's a pretty big feat. That was, right? That's basically a Maester Monthly Some- take. <laughs> that's not a girl's that's exactly silly take. enough for Maester Monthly. <laughs> Get well, today. we get silly sometimes. Get so we are going to do this passage. It's very long. We are going to just read this okay. passage till the end of the book mm-hmm. because I really don't care. I mean, it's my favorite passage, uh, so we're good. It's the best passage, and I don't think we can do mm-hmm. it justice summarizing because it's literally going to be the same amount of summary as it is passage. So we may as well do it because we're going to go all out. We're going to go all out. Uh, we all know our roles. Yep. All right. John, did you ever wonder why the men of the Night's Watch take no wives and father no children? Maester Eamon asked. John shrugged. No. He scattered more meat. The fingers of his left hand were slimy with blood and his right throbbed from the weight of the bucket. So they will not love. The old man answered. For love is the bane of honor, the death of duty. That did not sound right to John, yet he said nothing. The maester was a hundred years old and a high officer of the Night's Watch. It was not his place to contradict him. The old man seemed to sense his doubts. Tell me, John, if the day should ever come when your lord father must need choose between honor on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? John hesitated. He wanted to say that Lord Eddard would never dishonor himself, not even for love. Yet inside, a small, sly voice whispered, He fathered a bastard. 
Where was the honor in that? And your mother, what of his duty to her? He will not even say her name. He would do whatever was right, he said, ringingly to make up for his hesitation. No matter what. Then Lord Eddard is a man in ten thousand. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms? Or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind in words. Wind in words. We are only human, and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. The men who formed the Night's Watch knew that only their courage shielded the realm from the darkness to the north. They knew that they must have no divided loyalties to weaken their resolve, so they vowed they would have no wives nor children. Yet brothers they had, and sisters, mothers who gave them birth, fathers who gave them names. They came from a hundred quarrelsome kingdoms, and they knew times may change, but men do not. So they pledged as well that the Night's Watch would take no part in the battles of the realms it guarded. They kept their pledge. They kept their pledge. When Aegon slew Black Heron and claimed his kingdom, Heron's brother was Lord Commander on the Wall with 10,000 swords to hand. He did not march. In the days when the Seven Kingdoms were Seven Kingdoms, not a generation passed that three or four of them were not at war. The Watch took no part. When the Andals crossed the narrow sea and swept away the kingdoms of the First Men, the sons of the fallen kings held true to their vows, remained at their posts. So it has always been, for years beyond counting. Such is the price of honor. A craven can be as brave as any man when there is nothing to fear. We all do our duty when there is no cost to it. How easy it seems, then, to walk the path of honor. Yet, sooner or later, in every man's life comes a day when it is not easy. A day when he must choose. Some of the ravens were still eating long, stringy bits of meat dangling from their beaks. The rest seemed to be watching him. John could feel the weight of all those tiny black eyes. And this is my day, is that what you're saying? Maester Eamon turned his head and looked at him with those dead white eyes. It was as if he were seeing right into his heart. John felt naked and exposed. He took the bucket in both hands and flung the rest of the slops through the bars. Strings of meat and blood flew everywhere, scattering the ravens. They took to the air, shrieking wildly. The quicker birds snatched morsels on the wing and gulped them down greedily. John let the empty bucket cling to the floor. The old man laid a withered, spotted hand on his shoulder. It hurts, boy. He said softly. Oh yes, choosing. It has always hurt, and always will. I know. You don't know, John said bitterly. No one knows. Even if I am his bastard, he's still my father. <sighs> Mr. Eamon sighed. Have you heard nothing I told you, John? Do you think you are the first? He shook his ancient head, a gesture weary beyond words. Three times the gods saw fit to test my vows. Once when I was a boy, once in the fullness of my manhood, and once when I had grown old. By then my strength had fled, my eyes had grown dim, yet the last choice was as cruel as the first. My ravens would bring news from the south, words darker than wings, the ruin of my house, the death of my kin, disgrace and desolation. What could I have done? Old, blind, frail. I was helpless as a suckling babe, 
yet still grieve me to sit forgotten, as they cut down my brother's poor grandson, and his son, and even the little children. John was shocked to see the shine of tears in the old man's eyes. Who are you? He asked quietly, almost in dread. A toothless smile quivered on the ancient lips. Only a maester of the citadel, bound in service to Castle Black in the Night's Watch. In my order, we put aside our house names when we take our vows and don the collar. The old man touched the maester's chain that hung loosely around his thin, fleshless neck. My father was Maker, the first of his name, and my brother Aegon reigned after him in my stead. My grandfather named me for Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, who was his uncle, or his father, depending on which tale you believe. Aemon, he called me. Aemon Targaryen. John could scarcely believe it. Once, the old man said. Once. So you see, John, I do know, and knowing, I will not tell you to stay or go. You must make that choice for yourself, and live with it for all the rest of your days, as I have. As I have. Such a good speech. I... I, I, you can't read that without getting teared up. I, I read it earlier I and know. it got really emotional. I just got like, it's just all of it. And I mean, okay, we've done this before. So I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, this is secondary, but we did do this quote in our Edward 10 episode. We didn't the, do the full, no, the full we, no, we conversation. Full. The second half, you know, it was important. a Ned. Yeah. Yeah. We did the Ned part uh, in the beginning, but uh, I do want to say shout out to all I can ever think of is Eliana. When she did this because she read the whole little thing she was aiming and john in that and i always hear her voice like when he asks about eddard and like what he would do and i just hear him going he would do whatever was right no matter what and i hear your voice <laughs> in my head whenever i read it now like that's what i hear but also i hear the music oh. we put to it uh in oh, that yeah. and the music was very emotional and it was just really soft and we had the promise me going on and it was just uh it's good so hopefully whatever i do with this i'm gonna make some magic you guys won't know till you hear it <laughs> okay. Like you said, shout out to Elia. I'm like, I'm literally right here. <laughs> Who? Shout outs to, Who? <laughs> to her arithmetic or glass table girl. To our other host, <laughs> Allison. <laughs> She's our executive producer. Get it right. She is. Mm. Anyway, so let's talk a little about um, Eamon and his past and the things that have led to him. Those those choices that he has made that he must live with. I'm just gonna throw this out there. This is by far my favorite speech in the books. This is probably mm. the like the thing on YouTube that I've watched probably the most. This thing over and over again, him talking to John and just the connections between them and the symmetries and just how well it works for John and it tells you so much about Eamon. It's it's super well written and like uh, Chloe said, this one act that gets me deep in my core. Yeah, yeah, it's really beautiful. There's a lot of complicated emotions going on in here. Probably too much to actually break apart just because it's it's so dense and it's so great. But I think one thing that people have always this is sort of a fan theory part of it. Like so Eamon lists his three tests. He says one when he was uh, a boy, one when he was full grown and one when he was old. So I've always taken those as the youngest one when he was a boy was probably he probably fell in love. Maybe. Mm-hmm. When he first went to the Citadel in Old Town or before he left, when he left King's Landing, it would actually make some sense if he also left King's Landing and his family because of like maybe like a broken heart or a crush gone awry. 
that would make sense mm-hmm. for a character like that. Um, the second one has always been kind of tough, but I've decided that was when he turned down the crown. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That's nobody has really ever done that in the way he did. Other people have done it, like uh, Dun- Prince Duncan, the Prince of Dragonfly- uh, Dragonflies, did it for Jenny of Oldstones. And other people have turned it down for because they were already maesters, but it's never really been offered in the way it was to Aemon. And that must yeah. have been an impossible choice. Yeah, I wanted to add in real quick that two things, that Jenny's song that we finally got to hear in the show... Uh, obviously, and I know it's only show canon. It's probably probably not what George wrote, wrote, but I'm sure he told them, you know, this is what it's about. So good luck. Uh, that song, though, being played, especially as John tells Danny his parentage and that, you know, she realizes, oh, you have a claim to the throne has a little foreshadowing. I think a lot of people are wondering, is that going to happen? Is John going to abdicate his throne so Danny can be on it? Yada, yada. Uh, and I think that it ties in really well with Aemon Targaryen, especially since a lot of people tend to theorize Aemon is his name, uh, his actual mm. secret Targaryen name, and that they just have such similar kind of back and forth of what they're going to do. And I also think it reminds me of another Targaryen. It reminds me of Rule of Three, Danny's Three Treasons. Oh, true. Hmm. Yeah. How so? Uh, just that, you know, for love, for blood, for gold. Uh, so three tests, love, uh, taking the crown, or to go south as Aemon Targaryen. I mean, I think those are pretty uh, pretty similar in a few ways there. You know, a couple parallels in there. I also really love uh, the connections with John that Aemon's three tests really have to do with his identity. Where if he was a boy mm-hmm. and before he became a maester, he went from Aemon Targaryen to maester Aemon. Then he had the choice to go back. And then he did it again. And it's kind of like John switching back and forth, as I'm sure when he figures out his real name in the books, as he has in the show, where is he Jon Snow? Is he Aegon Targaryen? And just how those kind of identities shape you. Like, even as an old man, he thought about giving up his chain, riding south and becoming the king he never was to get vengeance for his family. And... That's such a powerful thing to turn down for him. That's why he starts crying and the losses he's felt. It's really it's really good writing, especially when you just, like I said, you take into account John's own problems with identity, especially in this chapter. So you think the temptation to go down was in vengeance and not, um, not as in a similar situation that John is in right now, like when he saw that his family was in trouble and to go down and to assist them. Well, yeah, that's that's parallel situations for blood uh, revenge revenge and venge- yeah, got it vengeance and treason blood. for blood. fire and blood treason for fire, fire and blood, blood. Mm. yeah wow. it's I, I i tend to think that this whole speech is this kind of a meta commentary and something i've sort of keyed in on a lot is that it really is the roadmap for john as a character the things he's really struggled with what Eamon's tests are the ones he kind of goes through as well how he will fall on different times, how he reacts to them. It's it's almost like George in this chapter, which is actually super short, we were talking about, just kind of laid out his plan for John as a character. And I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I totally agree that he does because like, you know, Eamon's tested thrice and so is so is John. And like coming back to biblical stuff, I think you see that these this idea of three different tests, three different temptations come up a lot in stories in general. It's part of it's part of being a hero, right? Like 
that temptation. And long, long ago, I wrote an essay about how the temptation of Christ in the desert bears the exchange between Euron and Aaron um, in the chapter of the Forsaken, because, you know, I felt compared compelled to write it since I was there when uh, the chapter was read aloud, and I'm never going to let anyone forget it. And um, like, we're going to come back to each of these different temptations as they occur in John's storyline, but they're all each different things that test his character. And as you said, they show us who John is, and I think in many ways they mirror the test that Eamon has, right? Because uh, with his family at war, it's very much like Eamon's most recent and by that I mean a long time ago but like it's still most recent right in the, in the, in the larger scheme of things pretty but, recent yeah yeah you know 15 years ago as opposed to the one that happened like 50 years ago for Eamon yeah but long time ago yeah with, with uh the Targaryen family at risk and John sees that with Rob's life at risk and same with Ned's as his family starts going to war. And then he says it again later with Egret and choosing Egret and the wildlings, that, that romantic love, as you were saying, that Eamon might have been tested with love as a boy uh, when he was younger. And then finally with Stannis promising... Um, and finally, with Stannis promising Winterfell to John, very much like Aemon being offered the crown, and all of these are refused by John in some way. It takes some coaxing, but it's very much the same as Aemon refusing those temptations. But just as like both Aemon and John actually end up being tested a fourth time, Aemon with the return of Daenerys and the dragons, and this time his faith falters. He so badly wants to go to her. And then for John, that fourth test comes with his quote-unquote sister, Arya, being married off to Ramsay in Winterfell. We all know it's Jane Poole. We, like, fucking just read all these chapters, everyone. <laughs> um, but and, and both of them fail, right? They fail that temptation. Aemon can't actually really actively pursue it because he's, like, old and dying. Um, and John also ends up dying in giving in to that temptation. He tries to rally the Night's Watch to be like, yeah, we got to go take Winterfell. We got to unite the North if we're going to, like, defend um, the Wall. And we see that as a reader, the line that stands out to John the most is he want is Ramsay wanting his bride back, wanting, quote unquote, Arya back. And that's that was very much, I think, a big motivation for him in wanting to march on Winterfell. And for that, he dies. And... Very much so. Each of these, like I said, they they challenged identity. John bounces between being Jon Snow, Jon Stark, Jon the Ranger, and <laughs> Jon the Wildling at a certain point, and Jon a husband basically to Egret. Yeah. And Maester Eamon does the same thing too. Sometimes he's Eamon and his and his just Eamon and his brother Egg. Sometimes he's Maester Eamon. Sometimes he's Eamon Targaryen, mm. and then other times he wants to be King Eamon. Yeah. But, or brother of the Night's Watching. And of course, it really yeah. harkens back just like Arya. You know, uh, she's Arya, she's Lump, she's Weasel, she's Nan. Yes. Uh, just like Sansa, too. You know, she's Elaine. They all have to lose their identity in order to figure out who they are and in order to come home. Yeah. It's very much um, trying on those different ways <sighs> of growing up. The faces. Yep. Different the fa faces. Yeah, the faces. Faces who, you know, that's just finding your identity. I think up. it's really, I think it's really cool that they are all these characters. John mm -hmm. is all those people at one. Mace Raymond is all those people yes. at once. But it's who they're choosing to show the world at that time and who they're choosing to be. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like that insight because I'm gonna get sappy again because that's all of us. 
We're all a lot of different people. Yeah. Sometimes you're a massive weeb, Eliana. <laughs> Sometimes. Not, no, no, that's always. <laughs> so earlier you kind of talked about how John and George both are basically questioning the reader in this chapter uh, and keeping us mm-hmm. listening and talking. Yeah, so we went over um, a couple of them while we were talking. The Ravens and Dove ones came up. Um, but one that we didn't really cover because it's kind of a throwaway line, but it's something that John asks himself. He says he threw the meat wondering why he'd been summoned. And I really think that's sort of, it's innocuous. It's really just a throwaway line, but George is asking you, why did this entire chapter happen? Why do you think I wrote this? And I think it's an excellent question from him. That's you don't catch on the first try because it's just John throwing meat into a cage. That's actually a really great way to put it. (laughs) Just seeing what sticks with the birds. Oh my God. Yeah. He goes, he gets a sword, he mopes and, yeah, throws some meat. God damn it. But it's interesting because I know we made all those jokes about Harry Potter earlier, but at the same time, that's kind of the same thing with that chapter, right? I mean, J.K. Rowling uses that chapter to hide that it's Sirius Black who's sending it. You don't know who's actually sending the firebolt in the Harry Potter scene uh, when he gets his broomstick that's so special and magical. You just know that someone sent it. And obviously you see the professors are all like talking to each other and whispering to each other because they're like, we know somebody sent it to him that's probably not good. But Harry doesn't think that. Harry's like, what do you mean you're taking my broomstick away? This is an amazing broomstick. What are you talking about? Uh, so it's kind of a similar, you know, you're getting all these gifts, you're seeing all these things, and there's a hidden message that's under the rug, and you're so dazzled by the sparkle of it all that we, the reader, and John at first don't recognize what's happening. John never recognizes well, it. He basically doesn't get until the last sentence where he goes, oh, wait. <laughs> he's like, oh, this is, a, this is a life lesson. At first, he's just like, oh, God, the old man's talking to me. He's going to lecture me. Uh, but he's like really showing his heart. Yeah. That's his heart, John. But it's also super rare that George really asks these questions directly to you as a reader. And it's interesting that he placed them here. And I think what we were talking about is a really pivotal, pivotal, pivotal chapter in John's arc, really throughout the rest of the books, but especially in the Game of Thrones. And the, the really deep choices that he has so many other characters deal with, like the idea of honor and duty and the one you love i mean both of john's fathers went through that rhaegar had the choice to stay honorable and stay to his duty and stay married to elia or he could run away with liana and we know which way he went on that one chose the heart we have actually ned is an example in a upcoming chapter when he's in the black cells when he talks to Varys. i talked about this in my um my killing of a ranger video but basically john here says that ned would do whatever was right but in an, almost in a heartbeat, Ned gives up his honor for Sansa. He gives it. Up, he gives up honor for love, and that's kind of John's instinct to this. He thinks Aemon's actually wrong. There's that chat. There's that um, that paragraph we were talking about where he said, "I don't know if that's right, but I'm not going to question Maester Aemon." And it's it's really interesting that even in such a pivotal chapter, we get examples and counter examples to people going different ways on this. Mm-hmm especially people very close to John, people that he cares about. Stannis does it too. He goes really the other way. He chooses honor over love really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I love that it's very like, it's that rug, like we said, slipping underneath that Eamon is obviously his relative and John is so worked up about his family right now. And Eamon's like telling him about his other family that he has no clue about. And (laughs) <laughs> it also was really interesting because then you bring in that fact that we learn later that Rhaegar and Aemon 
would correspond with each other, right? That they, when he was yeah. in the Citadel, Rhaegar was younger, uh, they would correspond to each other, which is obviously a big push of why Rhaegar woke up one day and said he had to be, you know, a knight. Uh, he had done all this research and all these scrolls. And of course, so while that rug is being pulled under us for John, it's being pulled out for Aemon as well, because Aemon probably suspects it or knows something's different about John and might have an idea of it. But at the same time, then you get him with Sam on the boat. You know, a Targaryen alone is a terrible thing in this world. And he it's has true. no clue. Do you guys, what do you guys think? Do you think Aemon knows? Do you think he suspects or... I think I he may suspects. I don't think he knows. I don't think he could suspect or know that John that that's part of the irony that he just doesn't know at all that John is a Targaryen. Especially cuz he's especially cuz he's blind where maybe there's some facial recognition or something in John's behavior or his mannerisms that maybe he would recognize from his family, but he can never see John, he can only hear him. Now, we know that John came out looking like Lyanna, but it's, I imagine Ned was terrified of Maester Aemon ever meeting John in case that something like that happened, much in the same way he kept John away from basically anyone that ever knew a Targaryen. Yeah. At the same time with all that, I find it interesting, you know, like he can sense Stannis' sword, for example, being false because of the mm. heat coming off of it. So I almost wonder if that even just that passage, the way it's written, you know, like he senses it's false because there's no heat coming from it. And John is a Targaryen, so he's probably hot blooded. Right? I don't know. I thought it's like he's got that spicy blood that Drogon mm, smelled. Delectable. <laughs> I, I honestly don't think Aemon knows. I think he probably does suspect because. Like you said, he's sort of a lie detector for this story. He calls out everybody. He sees through yeah. everything. Ironic being blind. But I think, like you were talking about with Rhaegar, and actually going back even further probably to Summerhall, and the role that he played most likely in Egg trying to hatch dragons as Aemon is a living expert on yeah. dragons and prophecy and lore, he, he almost certainly had a hand in it accidentally thinking he was saving his family. And after a certain point when you're a character like that, or you're a person like that, and twice you've seen your entire, almost your entire family die from you trying to snoop out secrets and find things nobody can find, nobody can see. It, it really seems like he turned his mind off until he heard about Daenerys again. Then he comes alive. So if he suspects John is Rhaegar's kid, I don't think he would want to know. Really, I think he would kind of ignore it. Yeah, and I mean. If he was wrong already before about Rhaegar being the prince that was promised, if he was wrong about all these other things that led to the ruin of his house, like, I'm just saying, like, he's incredibly wise in the idea of knowing that the sword is false because you it gives off no heat. Like, that is very much just a logic thing. I, I don't think I see him as an intuitive person when it comes to being able to be like, yes, I think that this might be my nephew <laughs> great great nephew but i don't know maybe i'm just boring like that it, it it is kind of a plot hole in the books that literally no one has ever questioned that but nobody has been like so ned went south to dorn and then came back with a kid and like everyone just sort of bought that it, that he fathered a bastard no one ever really put together like huh what would happen if a targaryen and a stark had a kid wouldn't it look like john well and that's exactly where 
Deep breath, everyone. That's exactly where Ashara Dane comes into play. Uh, it's disrespectful mm-hmm. to question it because everyone thinks it's Ashara. He's never explicitly said, no, it's not. But he also outlawed everyone from speaking about it, which means naturally everyone in the country knows about it because he said, no way, mm-hmm. stop talking about it. And he got very lucky that John came out looking like Liana and not like Rhaegar, because if it had come out like Rhaegar, his lie would have probably been a lot thinner of him saying, yeah, it was definitely Ashara Dane. Uh, but it's rude, right? <laughs> it's kind of rude to question like a baby whose mom is probably dead, uh, especially if it's a highborn lady that killed herself. That's kind of like, yeah, if you're diplomatic and if you're courteous, you're not going to say anything about it. True. That's a good point. Yeah, the people wanted to believe that something so salacious would have happened. Gossip girl. <laughs> that, honorable, that honorable Ned would have this sort of flaw. Well, it's just like what Cersei says, like, why'd she kill herself for the chi- for the child you slew or the child you stole? You know, like, yeah. she's, like, feeling it out, like, what actually happened? But as we know, his guilt goes far deeper than that. Oh, for sure. He's like a guilt black hole. He just absorbs all guilt in the universe. But I do think, like, you know, John questions what Ned does, and I think that but at the same time, John is correct. Ned would do what was right. And I think there's a difficulty here in that Eamon kind of frames love and duty as a dichotomy, uh, as opposites. And I don't think they necessarily are. And John's storyline very much shows that. Like, love for his family, of course, tempts him to leave his duty at the Night's Watch. But love for his family is also what keeps him dutiful to them in a lot of ways. Like, his love for his the Starks... As well as, of course, like the societal expectations that he's been raised him raised with, as we see, causes him to feel so much guilt about coveting like his um, trueborn quote unquote half brother's birthright, and then about being offered Winterfell and tempted by wanting Winterfell by Stannis. And I think that these sorts of choices are like very much scattered throughout the books. Like the so many vows they make you swear and swear, and of course, like those Ned parallels. Like Ned was. We see Ned make a similar choice again, like in a few chapters, like it, the choice is offered to Ned a few moments ago. What, and we get that repetition here. What is Ned going to do? What's honorable or the thing out of love? And I think that the thing out of choosing love can be the right thing to do and can in fact be the dutiful thing to do. Yes. It's true. And I'm, I'm not even sure if, Eamon really believes that they are separate. A lot of this really seems like he he and Jor are putting these questions to John to think about. What I don't I don't you can tell a lot about what Eamon really thinks um, as he's dying in a feast for crows, and a lot of this comes out, mm-hmm. and he feels a ton of guilt, and he definitely feels his love and his duty and his honor all mixed up together. He is not as black and white. Ah, black and white. Oh. Oh. As he as he is right here, but it's I think it's really important for them as John's mentors and the leaders of the Night's Watch looking to the future of the Order um, that John has to think about these things, that these are very important, especially in the frame of, is he going to take that sword and ride south? Or is he going to stay on the wall and take this new life that they're offering? Yeah, and there's that whole... That whole analog of black and white, which obviously can also relate to Kingsguard and the Night's Watch and that whole idea of this like 
colony, this penal colony of army bros that uh, are sworn to protect something. And they have to give up their whole lives for it. They're everything. Their families, their names, their this, their that. I mean, you know, war happens and there are king's guard that get put into captivity by their kings and say, hey, they might betray us. I can't trust them, you know, because they're nervous about it. And it's all framing, like, I mean, it's a perfect place to put your hero, right? You start off and you put the hero of your story in a colony where he can't level up. He's not going to do anything where he gets, you know, Mm -hmm. gets to have lands and a castle. He's not going to have a wife or kids. And then they take everything of doing that and putting this character into this area and this, like, limiting his, his story. And then they completely just subvert it and go... Except now he's going to do all of it and it's going to add up to exactly the emotional reason of why because of this speech right here. This is this is Amy yeah. telling us what's about to happen and the outlining of having the fellowship being so, you know, doing things to keep him in the watch is really what outlines that wonderful echoing haunting scene we're going to get. True. I also thought about something as you were talking about the black and white dichotomy and... um just this name is Aemon. So one of John's heroes is Aemon the Dragon Knight, who's actually the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard for several kings. So in effect, what Aemon is saying is you can be Lord Commander of the Night's Watch one day, or you could go south and probably be the Lord Commander of your brother's Kingsguard. You could probably do both. Which mm-hmm. one is more important to you? Which one's more? Do you want to guard the realm and because of what you've seen that the others are coming? Or do you want to help your brother win a crown? Which one's more important to you? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, that's a great way of showing that question of where he would want to serve. But now he has the sword. Now he has the sword. And I don't know. Well, Dragonite, the Dragonite had Dark Sister, too. Wait, Dragonite, the Pokemon? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, a sword Dragonite, stance. there you go. Sword stance. Oh, my gosh. A storm of swords dance? Oh, wow. oh my god, we did it. <laughs> you there. know, sometimes the it. song of ice and fire is the friends you've made along the way, I hear. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Um, I do like that John recognizes, though, when Eamon starts talking like, oh yeah, Eamon the Dragon Knight, and like starts name-dropping all these other fucking people. Uh, it's very much John piecing those things together and creates that sense of world-building of, of course, like, a lot of the way that we get a sense of world in the story is through stories within stories. Lady Gwyn of Radio Westeros talked about this in depth at a panel this past weekend at Ice and Fire Con. And John understanding and putting all of that together about Aemon's past shows you that, hey, he's heard these before. This is a thing people know and thus creates a sense of world. Um, but I do want to double back again, like since we are talking about the sword, um, something that I thought about earlier as we were, as, um, you know, you were talking about this, Matt, of how John gets the sword and he doesn't want it. And now that we're talking about like all of these um, choices that John has to make and the things that he wants and doesn't want, especially with the Targaryen history now being wrapped up into it, I, the sword feels very much like how John's going to feel probably when he learns that he's a Targaryen. And we get a taste of that, I guess, at the show, but he's like, Oh, cool. Thanks for this cool Valyrian thing. I don't <laughs> want this. I uh, actually still just really wanted to be a Stark. I just wanted to be loved in Winterfell, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. He um he really does not know what to do in this moment. Doesn't know what to do in the show when it's revealed. And I I just really love the way that these that George has forcing John to confront these. And it's it's he's being tempted with everything he wants. Mm-hmm. Right? He can have a real father that loves him in JR. He can have a version of ice, even if it's not the real thing. He can have brothers in the way that Rob never and uh Bran and and um and Theon never really could. Not really a mother, maybe Eamon's sort of like a motherly figure to him a little bit, but at least someone nurturing in a way that Catelyn was not for him. And it's it's really interesting seeing him deal with his history and the real anger he feels about it and does he deserve that kind of love really? Yeah, and I mean everyone deserves yeah. love. You know, that's the saddest thing about John's plot, in my opinion, is, like, he grows up never knowing who his mother was, you know, with his abandonment issues, thinking, like, was she ashamed of me? Like, why didn't she want me? Was he ashamed of me? Was he ashamed of her? He doesn't know why he wasn't wanted, and it's like, maybe some communication skills could have helped this, but on Ned's part. <laughs> <laughs> and there was um, one more funny John actually being a Targaryen thing. Well, I don't know if it's funny. I think it's really more tragic in that it's it depends how you look at it, really. Eamon, at the end of that speech, is talking about um, the death of Rhaenys and Aegon and um, Elia and Rhaegar and basically how Viserys and Daenerys had to run away. And he's saying how this is one of his great sorrows, knowing what happened to him. And Jon doesn't really react to those. He just more reacts to, holy crap, you're Aemon Targaryen. But the irony is that those are actually his half-brother and half-sister and his aunt and uncle, whereas the people that he's pining for are his cousins. He's more closely mm-hmm. related to the ones that Eamon is grieving for, but he feels nothing for them. Yeah. At least at least blood-wise, not, like, raising-wise, obviously. Yes, yes. If he ever finds out, I wonder if he'll think back to this conversation. He has to, right? This was such I a big part, so. of his, big part of his life. I think so. I think he'll I think reflect so. on this definitely. Probably, I don't know what winds or end of winds or beginning of dream. I think there will be some reflection on this. There has to be. I mean, if anything that the original version of all of this in the show has shown us, I don't. He won't at all. <laughs> it won't come up. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, all right. Well, I think that this was. An awesome, great discussion. Absolutely. I mean, I have, I, I said in the, in the Twitter DM that I had like three hours worth of things to say. No, I, I guess the one thing was, um, <laughs> I, the one last thing was that um, in the, in my Killing of a Ranger part two that I recently released, mm-hmm. like this, this quote in this chapter is such a huge part of it. And it's sort of, it ties into what I think John's sort of end of his story will be. Like we said at the beginning, it ends up being Theon on the show, but it's really having to make the choice of his own life versus, and the people he loved versus what he think versus duty or some kind of crazy sacrifice. Like Theon did charging mm-hmm. at the Night's King surrounded by death and tying back into Waymar, kind of like a no chance, no choice moment where it seems like he's really going that way. And this is one of the primary lessons I think George wanted him to know as a character before he gets there. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is a, and this is the depth building, right? This is only the first book. This is what's going to lead up to all of those great moments of, you know, you never should have loved her. You never should have left her. Uh, all of that, you know, did, did, was my father ashamed with my mother in his bed, you know, uh, all of that kind of is outlined here. It's etched here. And as we keep going forward, it just adds more depth. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It, it's sad because, yes, John is a whiny emo 14-year-old in a lot of these chapters, but, I mean, that's where your plucky little protagonist has to start out before he becomes a man, before he kills the boy. Aww. Or before he becomes Kylo oh my Ren. God, oh, it's damn. a scar. I get it. It's canon. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Joe Magician, Matt, for coming on with us. Uh, Please tell everyone where they can find you. Oh, it was a real pleasure, you guys. This is really my favorite chapter, and it was this was a very lovely conversation. I really enjoyed it. And getting back to read it, especially because I lost my original copy of Game of Thrones. What? So so I had to break out my 20th oh. anniversary illustrated version with like the gold on the side of it and all that stuff. So it's been 20 years. I know. <laughs> but I actually I actually had to open it because I had no other way to read the chapter. Uh, you can find me obviously on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Joe Magician, on Twitter at Joe Magician42, on the Maester Monthly podcast, which Eliana and I sometimes co-host. Um, with a rotating cast of other moderators. Yep. Um, and you can find me as a uh, feature writer sometimes on Watchers on the Wall. The ideas that do not make it to my videos usually end up there as essays. So there are good, there's good stuff there, awesome. too. Awesome. Well, definitely we'll check it out. We're really excited to uh, see the rest of your show content this season. Yes. As always, you can find us on a podcasting platform near you. Uh, check us out on Podbean, on iTunes, Spotify. Subscribe to us on Google Play, Stitcher, and Acast. And of course, if you want to keep track of the things that we're doing and any nonsense that we have, or just reach out to us in general, be sure to find us on social media at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, or you might want to shoot us an email over at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and hey, if you want to check us out on Patreon, we do have a Patreon. We just celebrated a stretch goal of hitting $1,000 a month. Uh, we celebrated with a live stream. That video is up on our YouTube channel. It is a quaint little YouTube channel. It's not very built. It will be mostly for live streaming in the future for fans and friends and listeners. But without further ado, check us out at Girls Gone Canon on Patreon. Uh, $5 and up will get you access to a special episode with Manu, Manuclear Bomb, from A Scene of Ice and Fire, where we talk about the very first episode of Game of Thrones, Winter is Coming, and the pilot episode that got scrapped. Yes, we talk a lot about some of the meta and production that goes into the show. And, of course, thank you everyone for listening to Girls Gone Canon. It has been a year since we first put out an episode, and... This is also our 50th, and so, again, thank you so much to Matt for joining us for our birthday, for, for being our guest at our birthday party. Oh, you guys are one year old. We're we one. Are. Can you remember? We were babies. We're you... one one. We, we were babs. babies. God. Wait. So, are you guys older no, than No, but Robin? we're older than babies tr- in Game of Thrones. Got him. How old is I that kid? he's like four now. Nobody knows. Yeah, they, he rapidly aged at one point. 
don't know. He might have a mustache going on. Probably better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Better than mine, too. I don't know. I do not grow good good facial hair. As always, I'm Chloe, one of your hosts. You know where to find me, Liza Arbor on the internet. And I am Eliana, another one of your hosts, also known as Glass Table Girl. Bye, guys.